0: these two issues, gender and sexuality for the church leaders, were seen as uh, essentially the same thing. So when they were opposing the Equal Rights Amendment in the 1970s, they were saying, if men and women are considered to be equal, then we're going to have same-sex marriage. Uh, And so they already saw uh, this, the opposition to women's rights as an opposition to gay rights um, during, during that time period. And what happens as the church's political strategy changes is they are able to sort of drop that patriarchal emphasis and accept that egalitarian marriage, or at least the possibility of an egalitarian marriage, as long as it's not a same sex relationship. And so they kind of put all of the weight. Now the threat isn't if women go to work or the threat isn't if husbands and wives are, are equal in the home. Now the big threat is sort of all that weight is put on same-sex marriage. That's the real thing that's going to kill our civilization. What's up, everybody? Uh, Welcome to the Cultural
1: Hall. If this is your first time here, thank you so much for finding us. Uh, I actually should say thank you to Taylor G. Petrie, my guest because it's likely that he is what brought you here. Uh, His book, Tabernacles of Clay, that's what we're going to talk about for about the next hour. We'll get to know Taylor a little bit more, why he wrote this book, and what this book is even about. What it means to be discussing sexuality and gender in modern Mormonism. Now, if you love this episode, a couple of things that you can really do to help us out, please share it. Take the link, share it on your social media, wherever and however you do that. Would love for you to do that. I know Taylor would appreciate that as well. Second, buy Taylor's book, For Crying Out Loud. It's gorgeous. You can pre-order it. Comes out in June. Great read. You are going to love it. And then third... So you don't miss any other discussions, episodes, people that you need to be knowing about and topics that you should get more information about. Uh, Make sure you subscribe to the cultural hall. Don't miss a single episode. Every week we do one episode of articles of news where we talk about what's going on. What is from the front page or often like page 15 of the newspaper that talks about the church and, and things that they're doing. And then every Friday, a different interview. We've been doing this for over 400 episodes. Check out some of our old ones, theculturalhall.com, or be sure to subscribe wherever you get podcasts. All right, enough business. Let's get to this episode. It's time for another episode of The Cultural Hall. It's episode number 409. We are talking with Taylor G. Petrie. This may be an adult-ish type conversation. So what we're talking about today is sexuality. We're talking about gender in modern Mormonism uh professor petrie as he's known on twitter has written this book it's called tabernacles of clay comes out the 15th of june excited to be able to be one of the first uh folks that get to even ask him about this book how did this whole thing come about did he send an email to contact at the no was he a part of one of our facebook groups and said hey you guys should interview me no not that either a shout out to calvin j burke a previous episode of the cultural hall who got an early edition of this book and said you guys You guys absolutely have to check this out. That's all it took for me. Taylor Petrie, thank you so much for stepping into the cultural hall with us.
0: I'm really happy to be here. Thank you. Why Tabernacles of Clay? Why'd you call it that? Well, good question. I pitched it around to a bunch of friends and they seem to like it. But it's meant to to suggest one of the main theses of the book is uh, that um, sexuality and gender are believed to be malleable for much of the church's history. So that's that clay aspect. Tabernacles of clay is actually a scriptural phrase from 2 Corinthians chapter 5 uh, to describe the body. And of course, tabernacles is a great Mormon word too, (laughs) right? So I tried to bring all those things together, but really to to focus on one of the main theses of the book that the church has not taught that gender is eternal, but rather that gender is fluid and malleable in much of its uh, even modern history. And the
1: artwork uh, is a gorgeous picture of the Salt Lake Temple we see the kind of the reflecting pond. The temple itself is, is the temple as we know it, but the reflection is a rainbow colored, which we obviously associate with pride and and everything that goes with that.
0: How did that come about? That's the brilliant artwork of the UNC cover designers, uh, so I'll, I'll leave that to them. I, I think that what it indicates is that um, there is a way in looking at LDS Church history that is this is a charged word, and I use it uh, uh, lightly in this context, but that is a little queer uh-huh. okay and what do we mean by that? Well, there's a whole theory, and again, it's a charged word and, and the book explains this a little bit if you want to get into it. Um, there's a whole history of scholarship on gender and sexuality that emphasize fluidity of of gender fluidity of sexuality as the sort of true nature of what gender and sex are. Hmm. And as the book is is attempting to show that the church's teachings also belong to that same sort of history of ideas, a conservative iteration of them, certainly, right, but belongs to sort of shared ideas about fluidity and gender and sexuality, that there's a kind of mirror or funhouse mirror version of Mormon history. That is uh, a little bit funnier uh, than, than people might think that we've always taught the same thing, but I say, uh, actually we've changed yeah. a lot. So that's, that's, I think what some of the symbolism that the press was trying to go for. So uh, who are you? Who's this, who's this Taylor Petrie from Kalamazoo college? So I'm a professor of religion here. And, uh, I uh, am a Latter-day Saint, I've been thinking about uh, uh, the intersection of gender and religion for most of my career, Um, but it really kind of uh, came crashing down for me in uh, the mid-2000s during the Prop 8 debates in California. I was living in Massachusetts at the time, but couldn't stop thinking about what I was studying in early Christianity, which was my primary field in gender and sexuality in early Christianity, how that affected how I thought about uh, Mormonism in in the modern world. And uh, it just kind of couldn't ever really get away from it. I kept coming back to it. I I still work in in early Christianity and still write in that field, but kept thinking, you know, somebody needs to actually tell this history that really hadn't been told before, in, in in my opinion, in a sophisticated way, about how the church had thought about these issues, even over the last 50, 60 years. And that's the area that I focus on. Everybody knows the story that we used to practice polygamy and now we don't, right? Mm -hmm. But uh, nobody really knows what's happened in in the meantime and how much the church has changed on this topic, even just in the last, as I say, several decades. And so that was the story that I wanted to tell.
1: So what was it about Prop 8 that made you just keep coming back to it? Because I had sort of a unique experience as well. We hadn't been uh, taught very much about it here in the state of Utah. If you were kind of aware, uh, you you would know that, hey, this proposition is going up in California. It's essentially trying to stop the uh, ability for um, homosexual marriage and that the church was being involved. But I didn't even really know that much. I was at a a ward. I had attended church on vacation. And from the pulpit, they said, we need volunteers to be able to go door to door this week. And I went, wait, what is happening? (laughs) So what was your connection to the whole Prop 8 thing?
0: Well, you may recall that Massachusetts had been the first state to legalize same-sex marriage in uh, the end of 2003, beginning of 2004. And I was living there at the time. And so we had kind of had this internal discussion in the context of Massachusetts of sort of being the first in the nation. And in the church, of course, we were talking about it, and we had kind of gotten a vague letter from the church that said, you know, you should express your opinion about it. And our stake president sort of winked and said, your opinion is your opinion, you know, didn't (laughs) didn't try and push us in one way or the other, and had kind of come to terms with that being, uh, you know, we knew where the church stood on the issue, but felt like there was some uh, room for members of the church to kind of take a different perspective and and as we had seen it play out then over the next few years in Massachusetts, it really caught me at least off guard uh, When the church and it shouldn't have now that I know more about the history mm-hmm. I should not have been surprised at all, <laughs> but I in 2008 was really surprised and uh, maybe maybe as your experience was too and um Uh, I just felt like, you know, this is, this is the issue of our time. This is something that we really need to give a lot of thought to and tried to read everything that I could about it and then thought, you know, I, have got something I need to say about this. So, um, so yeah, that's, that's a, that's a little bit of the story.
1: I want to get into the history of it, but first I think that we need to establish what in the world you're talking about when you say sexuality and when you say gender, I feel like that is the right place to start because I feel like sometimes we go oh, well, gender is this and it's not this and it looks like this, but it can't also be this. So let's just define some real great terms here in the beginning.
0: Huh, good, good question. The hardest question. Yeah, yeah.
1: Okay. I just I wanted to give you the absolute hardest question at the very beginning. <laughs> that way it's all downhill.
0: I'll give the, the 30 second overview of this. Um Contemporary culture distinguishes between three things, sex, which typically people uh, think of as biological sex, male, female, right? Uh, Gender, which are then the sort of uh, roles that people might associate with that, the kind of practices that people might engage around that masculinity and femininity, for instance, Mm -hmm. and then sexuality, which tends to refer to in the modern context, the um, uh, sort of attractions or orientations that one might have. And that's a good sort of rubric that a lot of people have, but I will say that what the book is trying to do and, and the sort of scholarship that I'm trying to draw on is actually one that shows how these have really been blurry mm-hmm. in the history of uh, of the way that people have thought about it. And that, that modern those modern distinctions don't really work that well when trying to analyze church history, for instance, in part because gender and sexuality were thought to be the same thing in much of the church's history uh, uh, in, in, especially in the recent history. So for instance, if you behave, if a male behaved in a feminine way, he would be gay. Or if a, if a woman wore pants and went to work, she would become a lesbian. Right. Mm. And, and so there was actually those, those hard distinctions that we tend to see between gender and sexuality, uh, as two separate things for much of the church's history, they conflated them as the same thing. And therefore, that's why they were freaking out about uh, women's roles as uh, and homosexuality, for instance, as being interconnected issues, not separate issues.
1: So let's take a trip now in the time machine and you take us back to the year and you decide what we're going to where we're going to onboard in this whole conversation.
0: So the book really begins with uh, after World War Two. And part of the reason is um as I said, everybody's familiar with the story of how the church used to practice polygamy and now they don't, right? Mm-hmm. And so often when people talk about the history of the church, they start with either polygamy and then that transition. Or I said, I, and I as I was doing the research for the book, I, I realized that there was a big transition after World War II that fit into a larger um, set of issues that were going on in the country. Latter-day Saints weren't the only ones who were really transforming the way that they thought about gender after World War II. And it's because World War II had been really disruptive to gender roles. All the men left, all the young men left, right? They were yep. gone. And so who was back at home? Going to factories, getting their education, studying medicine, studying law. It was women. So the 40s had actually been a time when a lot of women were, were um, starting to, to experience the world in ways that they hadn't really been able to do so before then. And then the war ends, all the young men come back and there's a, an attempt culturally, politically in churches to reestablish a kind of more traditional gender roles. And the church really gets, and our, our church really gets in on that project. And, um, and we join with, rhetorically join with a lot of evangelicals, fundamentalist Christians and so on, who experience a kind of religious revival after World War II. And uh we're a part of that larger movement of an attempt to sort of reestablish these gender roles once they had been disrupted. In, so that's where I begin.
1: In in what way did we do that? And what did that sound like? What did that look like as we tried to re-entrench ourselves into those roles before the war?
0: Yeah. Well, it it the main way that it looks in the early period in the 60s in the fifties and sixties, um, is a teaching that uh dies out but may still many many people who are listeners might still recommend it or remember it is the, is what's called the patriarchal order of marriage mm-hmm. and so the church sort of latches on to this idea and it had been around in uh the era of of polygamy of plural marriage and in the uh at the end of plural marriage there was an attempt to sort of hold on to the patriarchal order of, order of marriage so joseph f smith um uh, at the turn of the 20th century was was teaching it. And it's not that it ever went away. I don't mean to suggest that it went away, but it comes roaring back in the 50s and 60s as this is the way to do it. And uh, so you get things like family home evening, for instance, mm-hmm. as a new program. This, this happens uh, finally in the 60s, but you get sort of new church programs that are attempting to say, okay, the man is gonna lead in the home. He's gonna call on the prayers. He's gonna do that, right? Uh, and so a lot of the church programming is attempting to reinforce the patriarchal order of marriage. And the church really reorganizes itself completely during this time period. You see the beginnings of what's called the correlation program, mm-hmm. which, which for
1: people who don't know.
0: Yeah, which is an, it's it's an attempt to sort of centralize all of the church budgets, church authority, uh, decision making into the 12 apostles and, and the uh, and the first presidency. Whereas before the Relief Society was basically a kind of semi-independent organization, Uh, the Young Women's Association, the Young Men's Organization, they had all been, they had done their own fundraising, had their own publications. They were pretty independent, and the Correlation Movement attempts to bring all of those together. And that's under a sort of explicitly these are the terms that they're using a patriarchal model Hmm. here, where they're going to reinstitute these sort of hierarchy, gender hierarchies.
1: It's a pretty fascinating look at at uh, that time period, certainly the 50s and 60s, and and to then say the integration of correlation is this almost threat towards the the gender roles, right? A a very, Uh, a very harsh reaction, perhaps.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, there, there's, there are, you know, bureaucratic advantages to centralization. I mean, there, there, it's not that gender was the only consideration because they were thinking in terms of business principles and they were drawing on the kind of Um, you know, MBA language that was, that was developing during that time period as well, right? Efficiencies and so on. But, but very much the ideology was around this sort of hierarchical relationship between male and female as the key to to society's stability. Um, You you also, the other context is that, of course, we're in a cold war here and we're in a cold war against, uh, you know, the atheist communists, right? And, and so, Part of the religious revival and this effort to sort of uh, uh, this sort of anti-feminism that the church was kind of drawing on was an, uh, an effort to sort of hold back what they saw as the kind of revolutionary changes that, um, that communism was bringing, which included a sort of feminist uh, plank in, of communism. They said, we're not that. And so there was a rejection of a lot of those things to sort of guard the national security by bringing stability in the home. You know, and so they're very much connecting uh, a sort of American security to a f- to a certain kind of family ideology, too.
1: But but if we follow this through the history, then the 50s and 60s, we try and really clench and bring that back. And then what do we get in the 70s? But a massive sexual revolution.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. And, and they respond to and that, that, of course, happens at the end of the 60s as well. Right. Uh-huh. But the 70s was a pretty progressive time. Uh, you know, we, we tend to at least, you know, my naive younger self tended to think of a sort of we're always the most liberal now as we ever have been. And actually, the 70s was much more open and progressive even than we are today. Mm. Um, and so anyway, so yeah, you're exactly right. Then the 70s brings the Equal Rights Amendment to the front door of the church and the church transforms the kind of po- preaching that they had been doing on the family into a political project as well. Mm. And that's, again, joining with other conservative groups. The religious right emerges in this time period in part out of the uh, the ERA, uh, the Equal Rights Amendment. Um, and, uh, and so the churches uh, kind of takes this double effort here to be both a, a preaching organization internal to its membership mm-hmm. and also an outwardly faced political organization that's trying to transform the world too.
1: And then, you know, you look at those that are in leadership over the church in the 70s and then into the early 80s and very conservative uh, presidents, prophets of the church as
0: well. 100%. Yeah. So during the the 60s, 70s and 80s, Ezra Taft Benson is a major figure on the really, I think, safely say the far right of American politics and certainly the church's politics. He has a huge influence on a certain stream of conservative uh, uh, Mormon thought during that time period. But yeah, he's, he's, you know, right out front on these issues among others, but, but yeah, he's a big influence.
1: And and then we sort of travel into the eighties and nineties. And I know that we're going to come back and pick up pieces, but I think just sort of laying the the groundwork for all this eighties and nineties, I remember, oh, probably in the late eighties, uh, mom and dad having a, a fairly, shall we say lively discussion as one of the prophets talks about how the mother's places in the home, right? We start to give these very definitive, although they had been given previously this, this restatement of this is what men do. This is what women do. Even into the early, early nineties.
0: This is a, this, I remember this from my youth as well. (laughs) This was a huge talk. This was Ezra Taft Benson's to the mothers in Zion in 1987. Mm -hmm. And it was a reaffirmation, as you said, of this patriarchal order of marriage and this patriarchal theory. And, and it, he explicitly tells women to quit their jobs and many did. Yeah, uh, and, and to come home, he says, come home. You've got to quit your jobs. You've got to come home. You, you, your husbands need you. And he lists out the things to make the beds to, <laughs> you know. And so this was um in some ways it is it marks the kind of the last gasp of that patriarchal order because what's emerging underneath what i try to show what's emerging underneath all of this is a move towards a more egalitarian language around marriage now patriarchal marriage does not ever go away and egalitarian marriage does not ever fully eclipse it but during the era um and and in through the 80s and and up through the 90s you have another stream of thought in the church, which is emphasizing that husbands and wives should be equal partners. Mm-hmm. And so President Hin- or he eventually becomes President Hinckley, but Elder Hinckley at the time is somebody who's out front with that message. And there's actually a mini rivalry going on between Hinckley and Benson on women's roles. Um, when Hinckley becomes president of the church, he really goes after this issue and really tries to reset the table to say egalitarian relationships are the ideals. And this kind of comes through in the proclamation on the family mm-hmm. where you have this double language of uh, patriarchal marriage and egalitarian marriage side by side. Husbands will preside and also husbands and wives are equal partners. So we see that like, the, the document sort of captures the tension that the church is working on between these two co- two competing ideologies of marriage.
1: And then we get into the twenty first century, the early two thousands, and there's everything. You start, you talk about how it starts uh, with with uh, the the state of Massachusetts, and then uh, some would argue that because the uh, the uh, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints doubled or even tripled down so much that we ushered in uh, gay marriage that much quicker because we escalated
0: the issue. <laughs> that's that's possible. It's it's impossible to prove that. Sure, you know, but. But But it's uh, fun to say hyperbolic (laughs) statements like that. (laughs) So to to go backwards in time a little bit on the issue of homosexuality and same-sex marriage, um, there there are two stories that I think that are important to tell. One is the political history that we've kind of been laying out on uh, gender already and on men and women. And that goes back to something that I mentioned earlier about how these two issues, gender and sexuality for the for the church leaders were seen as uh, as essentially the same thing. So when they were opposing the Equal Rights Amendment in the 1970s, they were saying if men and women are considered to be equal, then we're going to have same sex marriage. Hmm. Uh, And and so they already saw uh, this the opposition to women's rights as an opposition to gay rights um, during during that time period. And what happens as the church's political strategy changes is they are able to sort of drop that patriarchal emphasis hmm. and accept that egalitarian marriage, or at least the possibility of an egalitarian marriage, as long as it's not a same-sex relationship. And so they kind of put all of the weight. Now the threat isn't if women go to work or the threat isn't if husbands and wives are, are equal in the home. Now the big threat is sort of all that weight is put on same-sex marriage. That's the real thing that's going to kill our civilization, you know. Um, so all of the earlier concerns that they had sort of drop away, or at least are get get put in the background, and everything gets placed on same-sex marriage as the the you know the the last stand to hold up, to uphold our civilization. So that's one story. The, uh, the, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Go no, ahead. please. The other story that I think is really important in all of this is the theories that church leaders are offering for what causes homosexuality and what cures it mm-hmm. throughout this time period, and that's because they don't accept the the notion that these are kind of um, fixed, you know, qualities that somebody has, that somebody is or isn't uh, a homosexual or heterosexual. They see this as a super blurry, fuzzy boundary that um, gay people could become straight and straight people could become gay in the, cert- in the right circumstances. Mm-hmm. And so they invest heavily in psychological treatments to cure homosexuality uh, up, up until in some, in some ways, in certain circles at least, these are still live ideas, though I think the official church has backed away from some of those ideas uh, in, in, the, in recent years. But that theory of a kind of psychological malleability of sexuality, coupled with the political efforts to sort of suppress uh, uh, same-sex relationships, is a part of this broader uh, uh, effort to make society itself someplace that's compatible with the church's teachings, uh, that, that, that the church's teachings on um, the, what kind of marriages are going to bring salvation, right? are uh, going to be something that fits into broader society. So they're putting political pressure, psychological uh, efforts, and then their own internal preaching all together to kind of create this situation.
1: So keeping it nice and clear, just very simple, not complex, <laughs> nothing like that
0: going on there. Yeah. Uh, Sorry. You know, I, when you have, I got a lot <laughs> to say about that. No, listen,
1: listen, that, and that's what I, what I think is so valuable about the work that you've done and uh, and, and that really, when when we talk about any of these things about sexuality, about gender, about you know about about all of this, that it's not just as simple as here is a thing and I can just say that answer. Like it, there is there is so much surrounding it that it's important that we're having this conversation. I want to take a break real quick, and uh, when we come back in the second block, I want to dive. Uh, I want I want to dive head in uh, to sort of the history with homosexuality within the church. And and I'll tell you what we mean. We'll come back and do that in the second block of the cultural hall. Hey, it's me, Richie T. I found myself with a little bit more time on my hands and maybe you're finding yourself in that same position. Well, allow me to introduce you to best podcast consultant in Utah. I don't have the domain and, and really I can do this wherever because I'm doing most of the classes virtually. But if you would like to reach out to me, uh, probably the simplest way is if you just do contact at the com, or you can find me online, com. You can check that out. I would love to help you if you are already established in a podcast or you're thinking, you know what? I've got this downtime. It's a passion project. I've always wanted to do it. You can reach out to me. You can do contact at the com, or find me on any social media at Richie T. Stedman. When you need creative, affordable design, let
2: it be Lennon Design. Call 801-699-3022 or visit Lennondesign.com.
1: Time now for the second block of the Cultural Hall. If you like this episode, and I know you do, uh, please, 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 please feel empowered to go to wherever you're getting this episode and leave us a review. You can say, Taylor Petrie is the best interview ever that you've had in the Cultural Hall, and I would love to see those comments. Uh, wherever you're at. You can even just do the stars. If you're like, man, I'm too lazy. I don't want to put in the comments. I just want to do the star review. We would love to see that you like this episode because we know that you do. Take a second and do that. I know you got plenty of time. You're quarantined. So take the time. Taylor, uh, how early within the church are you aware of that this idea of homosexuality and homosexuality within the church started to be brought to light?
0: This is a, a good question, and this is something that I, I'm arguing for, I think, the first time uh, in this book, and I think I'm right on, on this particular Well, of point. course
1: you do. If you, you wouldn't <laughs> write it if you thought you were wrong, but I appreciate that you're like,
0: well, I could be wrong. I'm not, but I could be. <laughs> different people date this to different time periods, and it depends on what you mean. And, and let me explain wh- what I mean. Um, the church has always prohibited, uh, same sex relationships in some form or another. Uh, other historical researchers have shown that, uh, they were not taken as seriously. They were considered much less serious, for instance, than opposite sex, sexual relationships in various times in our history.
1: What do you mean? And, Explain that to me. Cause I'm not sure I get what you're
0: speaking. So around. if, uh, if two boys were, you know, caught, uh, uh, in the, you know, behind the barn, fiddling around or Uh something like that. Right. Uh They, they might get tattled on. They might not, it might not necessarily be, you know, something that they'd get in trouble for with their church leaders, Uh maybe a stern talking to or something like that, you know? Um, whereas if it was a boy and a girl, they might, it it would be much more serious at Uh earlier periods in the church's history. Okay. Okay. And one example that, that illustrates this is actually happens in the 1940s. It's a, it's a, it's a story that I tell. Um, there was uh, the the patriarch of the church this office doesn't really exist in the same way that it that it did anymore we used to have a patriarch of the church uh, it was joseph f smith not the same joseph f smith as all the other joseph f smiths yeah we're riddle,
1: we're riddled with joseph f smiths <laughs> yeah.
0: and he's the patriarch of the church and he is engaging in an affair with a young navy uh, returned navy soldier or so whatever navy sailor is i guess uh-huh. right and the, the young man's father brings this to the attention of the church leaders. Um, and uh, they they kind of exile him to Hawaii, to Joseph F. Smith, to Hawaii. They don't quite, you know, they definitely don't excommunicate him. They don't kick him out. They sort of sweep it under the rug a little bit and say, go off and spend your days in Hawaii and, you know, and try to take care of yourself. Uh-huh. In contrast, uh, just a couple of years later, one of the apostles uh, is uh, caught having an affair with a woman, and they bust down the door, you know, catch him in bed, and then they publish it in the in the Salt Lake Tribune the next day. Apostle, you know, caught in adultery, and make it a big deal, and they excommunicate him. Right? Wow! And so you see the ways in which same sex relationships were not approved, but not necessarily taken as seriously as as uh, as heterosexual relationships, right? And I'm being a little bit sloppy on this term, but, but what, I'm, what I'm trying to get to is to say that um, church leaders used to think about a sins that they called sodomy or the crime against nature or something like that. But when they first talk about homosexuality, that's not until the 1950s. And so um, what, they're, what they're starting to do is change the way that they start to think about these acts as, oh, these aren't just like some furtive things that somebody's trying to get away with something. They start to think, oh, this is actually evidence of a deep sickness that somebody has. Mm. And they they adopt a kind of medical or psychological approach to thinking about same-sex relationships and same-sex intimacy as um, that that it tells some deeper story about who you are and that you're, you know, internally troubled in some way. Whereas before they just thought, oh, you know, well, you know, boys will be boys or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, Opportunism or something is is the would maybe be the explanation for it. But now they start to think of it in a totally different set of terms. And once they start thinking of it as homosexuality, as this new psychological category, they, that completely changes how they think. And they think, oh, we've got to cure these people. We've got to develop programs. We've got to develop retreats for them. We've got to have them make sure that they're checking in with their bishops every day. You know, all of this new kinds of apparatus around, around curing homosexuality. So homosexuality, I argue, isn't invented in the church until the 1950s uh, as a new way of thinking about this. How is that with the comparison to society at large? Happening at the exact same time, so uh, we get the beginnings of a psychological and medical approach to homosexuality at the end of the 1800s and beginning of the 20th century. So the famous examples, of course, Freud and and others, right, who are starting to think and talk about this stuff. That's it's kind of a small conversation there, and it brings its it it kind of shows up in the popular culture in the 1920s in the United States, right. Mm -hmm. But the big thing that sort of blows everybody's mind is Alfred Kinsey, the Kinsey report. Are you familiar with this at all? I can explain it if it's Uh, not.
1: The Kinsey, I'm assuming it's very similar to the Kinsey scale.
0: This is where the Kinsey scale comes from. So Alfred Kinsey is a sexologist. He's a researcher out of the University of Indiana, and he publishes a book in 1947. So just after uh, the World War II, where he interviews all of these men uh, on uh, their sexual practices. And it turns out something like one out of every three of adult men had engaged in some kind of same-sex sexual exchange as adults. And he says this is a common, normal thing. Everybody's doing this, you know. Hmm. And uh, and and so and then he develops the Kinsey scale, right? He's like, there, you know, most of the people that are in this are are you know in the middle there, right? A uh, uh, one, two, three, four, five is the rate of their homosexual versus heterosexual attractions, right? See, but he says, this is totally normal. Churches freak out, right? And our church is among those. And so all of a sudden in the 1950s, churches start talking about this and a lot. Um, and so we're, we're right in line with what other churches are doing as well. Again, there's some in the 1920s, you see some like East Coast churches that are sort of starting to think a little bit about this uh, because they're more connected to these broader uh, intellectual conversations that are happening around this. But we're right in line with all the conservative churches, at least, that that come on after World War II to think about homosexuality in these new psychological terms.
1: And this is where we start to develop, like you mentioned, these really just uh, extreme and uh, often very uh, like physically harmful sort of treatments. Right. Electroshock therapy. Or am I jumping the gun? Is that not for a few years later?
0: Well, that's not for a a, a few years later, but but. In the 1950s, psychologists are doing all of that stuff. Mm-hmm. So, psychology, and they're they're uh, developing um, these psychological theories called behavioralism. And behavioralism is the idea that you can, you know, it's the ring the bell and the dog salivates kind of a thing, right? Mm-hmm. And they're like, we can do this for humans too. So we can train uh, our minds to desire or not desire certain things. We can salivate on on command, just like dogs could, right? Mm-hmm. And so, uh, the behavioralist psychology. Is really in vogue during the time period. It's kind of fallen out of fashion a lot since then. But there was this optimism of, oh, we can shape and change human beings. And church leader, LDS church leaders love this because it fits right into their idea of, aha, this infinite potential and change and progress and so on. And so, uh, but so yeah, we get deeply embedded really over the course of the, just to be a little bit more precise, the the end of the 1960s and the beginnings of the 1970s is when you start to see the church really take on psychological practices as a way of treating this. Um, they had psych- They had already developed psychological theories before that. And I can get into more of the, the differences in all of this. But once they start saying, oh, we actually need to hire professional therapists and fund professional therapists through LDS Family Services or LDS Social Services, that doesn't start until the 1970s. So you get a, a little bit of a lag with the sort of professionalization of treatment of homosexuality. But uh, but, yeah, they're they're working on the uh, the seeds of that go back to the 1950s and 60s.
1: When do we first hear about uh, homosexuality over the pulpit?
0: Well, the first reference is in, I think I want to say it's 1952 or 1953 in a Relief Society meeting,
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, a general Relief Society meeting. Uh, but it's Kimball. And that was by J. Reuben Clark. Kimball is As the in first- President
1: Spencer W. Kimball.
0: Yes. Okay. Thank you so okay. much. Spencer W. Cable, not president elder at the time. Yeah. Uh-huh. But he had been tasked with uh, coming up with a solution to this. And and he just goes whole uh, hog into in this. And and um, his own career trajectory is really interesting to follow on all of this. But he starts talking about um, the using the terms of the time perverts hmm. um, uh, is there was was where they started kind of using that term in the 1960s at BYU specifically. And it's in part because they feel like young people, young men are really vulnerable to to this. And so you start to get really harsh language spoken about this in the 1960s over the pulpit at BYU. And and uh, then in general conference, um, I think by the 1970s is when the first time you start hearing about it, then I'd have to go back and double check. But, but yeah, it's sort of in the background, they're starting to give letters to church leaders, say, here's how you deal with it. But once they start speaking about it publicly is a little bit later.
1: I mean, it's a tremendous history because then we obviously follow it through into the 80s and 90s, where to me, it doesn't seem like, you know, I think we're probably contemporaries of each other. I was born in 1980. Maybe you're roughly the same age. Uh, Like, I don't remember from the pulpit or from friends or really anyone until I was maybe uh, an early, early tween, even, even uh, recognizing or hearing or, or what's the word I want to say? Uh, having people discuss even homosexuality within the walls of the church or within the, the the context of like, Oh, that person is gay or that person is not gay. But then it, it really seems like as we push out of the eighties and into the nineties, that then it becomes, a, a lot more center.
0: I'll tell you why. There's a great reason why. And this blew me away. I, this is a story that I didn't know until I started doing the research on this book. In the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, church leaders used the term, as a, as we said, perverts, right? They used the psychological terms homosexual. Uh-huh. But at the end of the 1970s and all through the 1980s and up, through, up until really about 1994, 1995, they really avoided these terms. They believed that if you said them out loud and if you applied them to people, it could actually cause it. And so it could implant the idea in oh, some way. Okay, wait a minute. Where, <laughs> how, I, that
1: even, okay. How, wh- yeah. where, did, where does that come from?
0: <laughs> well, Elder Packer gives a talk at BYU in 1977. And he says it's called Two Young Men Only. And he says, I'm going to use the term only once homosexual. Right. And, and then the rest of the talk is all about, is all about that. But he's uses all of these other, all these other terms. And he sort of sets the stage of like, they back away right from, from this term. And it's really in some manuals that you see it and stuff, but they don't want to say it out loud because they think that it'll give you the idea of it and then you'll obsess on, it, and then it might cause it. And so, um, what happens in 1995? What changes all of this is they finally find a new term, same-sex attraction, huh. and uh, Elder Oaks gives uh, or, or uh, writes an enzyme article in 1995 called same-sex attraction or same gender attraction. I can't remember exactly what it is. They're, they're interchangeable for them, um, and they say, "Aha! This is what we're going to call it now. This is the term, right?" And after that, all of the language, almost all of the language that comes out of the church is same gender attraction, same gender. Again, because they're worried not only that it will cause the idea, but that it, it, what it does, what they think that the term homosexual does, is it gives somebody an identity that they believe is then like fixed and not changeable, and they say, aha, same sex attraction is a term that can. Um, allow for, it's a psychological, it's again, a sort of medical diagnosis, Mm -hmm. right? So you can be cured from that. You can't be cured from your identity, but you can be. So there's all this rivalry around the language around uh, that we use around homosexuality. So it doesn't surprise me at all that during part of your youth, these terms didn't really come up because it was exactly during that time period where they were um, using euphemisms and and avoiding saying the words out loud and so on.
1: Like Beetlejuice. That's what I'm reminded of (laughs) when you say it, right? Like, we yeah. can say it one time, guys. But if you say it three times, there's Michael Keaton and suddenly you're gay. Like, I just I just don't that that is fascinating to me that that's the but but even further, as you were talking and, and thinking about that, I, I think of the um the parallels to just sexuality. Right. If we talk about heterosexual, like premarital sex, if we talk about it, then we're going to do it. And, and yeah. And and that's proven time and time again that that's just not how that works.
0: I'm sure you remember the bishops, uh, the one, the annual bishops um, morality interview or uh, lessons or something like that. At least where I grew up, you know, mm-hmm. we had the, and yeah, there was always this anxiety around them. It was like, oh, you're gonna give all these people these ideas, you know? It's yeah. like, oh, well, if if uh, front ru- if back rubs in the front room lead to front rubs in the back room or whatever it is, you know? These <laughs> right. Are- all of a sudden, you're like, "Oh, that's how it works." Oh, 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 oh. <laughs> yeah. So, anyway, uh, but yeah, there's exactly all this anxiety about how much do we talk about it, how not do we, what are the euphemisms that we use, and so you get all the you know euphemisms like soul kissing, and you know all these kind of language that that um, you know petting that as a lot of kids were like, "What are you even talking about?"
1: Yeah, like, you know, yeah. yeah. I mean, and, and that are still around today, like yeah. when you talk about. Uh... Like, uh, like petting, and I've heard sparking, and I've heard you know <laughs> m- monkey bites and all these things. And I'm just like, what? Even if we could just call these in terms that people would understand, maybe we could have a better conversation about all this. Um, this is fascinating. I want to take another break. Uh, when we come back, I want to talk about, uh, obviously since you kind of study the history and then obviously we haven't reached what today is, there's got to be some sort of uh, transcendence into where we are now. I would hope that you will be willing to speculate on the future and, uh, and uh, we'll wrap this sucker out. We'll come back and do this in the third block of the cultural hall.
2: Hey, this is Dan, the laptop man from PC laptops. I know we're going through a lot right now. Many states are quarantining people to their homes so that they have to work remotely. One of the things that's really important is to have a computer that's functioning correctly. One with a good webcam, one that's fast so you can be productive, one that has a good quality screen because you're going to be on this all day remotely. Computer supply has been strained because manufacturing has almost stopped. At PC Laptops, we've secured a limited quantity of laptop and desktop computers that are backed with a lifetime service guarantee. They're available for you right now in limited quantity. The great thing about PC Laptops is this. Once you buy your new computer, if you have any problems or questions, we're here to take care of you. Also, to make it really easy right now, we've arranged with some banks to offer 12-month special financing. Get into PC Laptops right now, because at PC Laptops, we're here for you, and we're in this together. PCLaptops.com.
1: It's time for the third block of the cultural hall. Uh, we are talking all about sexuality and gender in modern Mormonism, and it seems like we haven't gotten to the modern part of Mormonism. As we were talking in the second block about uh, the sexual revolution and all of the, you know, we 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 coined the phrase perverts, and then same same-sex or same-gender attraction, uh, my mind kept drawing up uh, the I, the uh, name of the book, The Miracle of Forgiveness by Censor W. Kimball. And I was like, this has got to be right with the time when he wrote that. It was, I checked that as we took a break real quick, 1969. Uh, and for, I remember in my youth into my mid-teens that that was the thing. If you went to the bishop and you had, you know, done something, anything, and I'm not even speaking about like, uh, you know, crimes against sexuality, or whatever we would <laughs> coin that, uh, you would get that book, Miracle of Forgiveness. And and today we've all but abandoned it.
0: Yeah, it, it actually was finally put out of print uh, just a few years ago. I forget exactly when, maybe 2017, 2016, some, somewhere around there. But that was the standard for five decades in the church um, and has some of the harshest language, not only around uh, uh, sexuality in general, but especially homosexuality. And represents this time when it was a little bit before they had adopted psychological cure treatments. Mm -hmm. He he actually references in the book the kind of very beginnings of this. He's like, we've got a bishop, you know, who kind of handles these cases for us. And and he himself was handling them, right? Um, But but they hadn't yet hired on psychologists and done all that kind of stuff. So it's this fascinating sort of in-between period, at least with respect to homosexuality. But yeah, he had he, he had this very uh, the book is, as you, I'm sure, remember from from reading it as a kid was scary. You know, yeah. it was meant to scare you. It was meant to scare you. Yeah.
1: I, I remember just quick and anecdotal. I remember taking a miracle of forgiveness institute class in college where we skipped through some of the worst chapters of the book, because I remember the, the uh, Institute professor was essentially like, yeah, 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 we don't need that. <laughs> you, don't, you don't need to feel bad about yourself. Or actually, maybe we started at the end like the hopeful part before we uh-huh. dove into the you're the worst human being in the creation of yeah. ever uh, that, that, that some of the rest of the book did. So so um, the book Tabernacles of Clay, as we move towards modern Mormonism, you know, I talk about how kind of mid-90s, and you, you mentioned it as well, it's that same-sex attraction, same-gender attraction. You no longer hear these claims that, um, you know, the nature versus nurture. We sort of uh, abandon the idea that, and it's crude in its, uh, in its purport, that, you know, it's Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve, you know, all of these just crude, terrible things. And we move to this, this era of, well, we don't really like it, but we don't know until we're today so what happens in in those early 2000s to complement prop 8 that that bring us to where we are today
0: this is a this is a really interesting period uh, and I think that there are there may be two or three things that I'll mention that I think are relevant the first is there's actually the invention of a new doctrine during this time period and one that people don't fully realize how important it is and it's one where, I think that if I'm, I'll offer my speculation and my argument for it, where it comes from and why is that they, after about 20 years, 30 years almost of working with psychological treatments, uh, and seeing them as not nearly as effective as they had promised or hoped or believed, um, many church leaders are coming to terms with the fact that sexuality might not be as changeable as they thought it is, mm-hmm. it, And uh, and the new doctrine that they develop is that it might not be changeable in this life, but it will be in the resurrection. Hmm. And so heterosexuality is a part of, if not the mortal realm, definitely the immortal realm. And it's meant to sort of solve this problem of all of these, you know, gay men and women who are like, I've been trying to really hard change my sexuality and it's just not working right and church leaders uh, instead, uh, whereas in earlier generations, they said, if you don't change, you're, you know, if you don't get married, if you don't change, then you, salvation's out for you. They start to carve out this new opportunity for at least uh, uh, gay and lesbian Mormons who remain celibate mm-hmm. to become heterosexual in the next life. So there's a, that's one of the big uh, changes that I think happens. Another one of the uh, uh, changes that goes along with that is then if it's not as changeable, then what accommodations can we make in the church for gay and lesbian Mormons to be comfortable here? Right. And so you see, you know, they're, they're unsuccessful for this uh, uh, in, in, for many people still think that they are up until this day. Right. Mm -hmm. But they're unsuccessful for this when they're fighting against gay marriage for a long time. So you see this rate, the spate of suicides, for instance, Sure. I'm a threat to society. I'm a threat. and, But after Prop 8, there is, I think, a kind of reckoning in the church that we need to do something better. And so you see um, the new pastoral websites that the church puts out, first up Mormons and gays, and then later Mormon and gay. And these are attempting to have Latter-day Saints tell their own story about how they sort of navigate their sexuality in the church. So there is this kind of Efforts to be again successful or unsuccessful is, you know, a different judgment, but there's our Mm -hmm. efforts to be more open and inclusive, uh, uh, there. So, so those are some of the big changes that, of course, the church is still kind of in that moment here of what accommodations can or can't be made for gay and lesbian Mormons.
1: It, It, uh, it becomes such a fascinating thing to me to recognize that all of these, um, what these attempts to to bring everyone in. I don't, I, you know, there are so many people that I feel like left because of hurt feelings around prop eight. I I've got to think that leadership of the church is like, guys, we are losing lots of people. And, 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 you know, in a way, I don't think that that threatens the church necessarily, but I think that where, where, you know, we think of God as love and we think of Christ, you know, who said everyone, when we, when we sort of split these hairs and say, everyone but you, or you have to be this particular way when you get to heaven. So enjoy how you are now and you'll be changed in the eternities. Like it, it, it in its nature just becomes exclusive and difficult.
0: This is, you know, one of the number, one of the top reasons that young people either struggle with or leave the church. And so speculating on the future, which is absolutely impossible, I don't know. But I know that the the challenges that the church is facing on retaining young members especially are going to continue to founder on, on this issue and that they, at least according to the judgment of many young members, have not found a satisfactory solution yet. Um, the church, I think, feels legitimately caught on this issue because they have for so long emphasized that this is you know sort of an unchangeable teaching, despite mm-hmm. the fact that it's changed a million times in the last 50 years. Uh, but the, the sort of core, what they see as a sort of core essence of it is unchangeable. Uh, and so they kind of painted themselves into a corner a little bit. I don't know what they're going to do, but right. uh, the issue isn't going away.
1: I mean, and then certainly if we compare and that's by no means a comparison, but where a, a revelation can take something that we have said over and over and over is not going to happen. You know, a, a revelation like, for example, with the priesthood. I mean, that went from no to yes in a day, in a revelation. Um, so something like that, but yeah, have amazingly painted themselves in the corner. The other thing that I think is is really fascinating, and you'll have to forgive me. You probably noticed I was a little distracted. Uh, I couldn't remember the name of the book, um, but uh, that me that we may be one. Uh, D Todd Christopherson's brother, Tom Christopherson, uh, wrote, and he is you know he is a gay gentleman within the church and brother of an apostle, and I have to think that uh Todd Christofferson or Elder Christofferson I should give him the respect that he deserves in that calling. Uh I've got to think that he feels a little differently than maybe, you know, some of the rest of the brethren or or maybe than the
0: doctrine specifically
1: of the church.
0: I don't know just to speculate personally and I don't know these guys and and uh you know I wish I did, right? Sure. <laughs> but um it's If it's not among this generation of church leaders, it may be a future generation that thinks differently, as we have seen on patriarchal marriage versus egalitarian marriage, right? Uh, You know, even going back, and this is a big part of the book, too, is we used to teach about segregated, racially segregated marriage Mm -hmm. for a long time, Right. and uh, we actually still taught it even after the revelation on the priesthood in 1978. We still taught against segregated marriage, uh, or we still taught in favor of segregated marriage, and now you never see that anymore, you uh-huh. know, or very, very rarely, maybe in, in some circles uh, uh, still. But uh, but but these are things that at every stage in those earlier periods, church leaders said, no, we can never change that. We can never change that. And then they did. Right. And so uh, what is possible? What changes are possible? Uh, you know, they've got to decide that they've got to figure that out. But. The precedent certainly is for changing their teachings on gender and sexuality quite a bit, even in recent times.
1: So do you think that that uh, lends to the greater frustration is that those people who either find themselves uh, in uh, homosexual relationships or uh, I, d- I don't want to say confusion is in that they don't know, but they're not heterosexual. They find themselves somewhere within the scale that they go, guys, I know you're going to come around to this. Can we just come around to it now so that I can enjoy all of the other blessings rather than making me feel alienated
0: for so long. I think that, that there's a huge amount of impatience on the part of a lot of people who, who, who find themselves in that situation. Absolutely understandable. Sure. Anybody who's asked to sort of put their life, put their relationships on hold for some ideal that they're not sure that they even agree with. Right. Uh, is a lot to ask of people. Um, so yeah, I, absolutely. I think that the 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 sense that the church, the sense among a certain group of, of of members of the church that the church could and should change on this issue, is a huge source of frustration for the, for those members who feel like they're not being listened to or or that their situations aren't being taken into into account. Do, do you think that it just now nowadays,
1: as in 2020, as in the timing of this interview? Do you think that um it just hinges on the ability to procreate between uh, men and female heterosexual relationships, that that's why it hasn't changed?
0: Well, that's a good question. Um, I, I there, there are two ways to answer it, because, of course, church uh, leaders allow for non-reproductive relationships all the time in the church, between older members who are incapable of having children anymore, or between people who are uh, uh, infertile and knowingly infertile, you know, before they get married. Mm-hmm. There are all sorts of uh, non-reproductive relationships that that are accepted hmm. At the same time, you know they the the answer to that would be, well, in the next life, they might be reproductive yeah. right? mm-hmm. uh, that that uh, that there's the possibilities at least. so this is not in this book. this is where we're in theology, not in history <laughs> anymore now, right? Uh, but I, I I have written on exactly this question in a theological paper mm-hmm. called Towards a Post-Heterosexual Mormon Theology, where I look at all of the kinds of reproductive relationships that are not heterosexual in, in our tradition and in the scriptures and so on. And there are a lot. There are a lot, you know. Mm. Um, so I, I'm not sure and, and I'm not sure that we want to really hang everything on post-mortal reproductive life in a very biologically literalist way. Sure. Uh, you know, that's a lot, especially since you can't find the idea in the scriptures hardly right. anywhere. Right, right, <laughs> you know? right. In very, very thin things in DNC 132 or about what everybody hangs that on. Uh, so I, I, I don't know that that certainly could be a big motivating factor for the for the current teachings. Uh, but it's it's not a particularly strong one.
1: So so then as you get to the end of, of your book, it's called, by the way, Tabernacles of Clay, comes out June the 15th, and people, I recommend that you check this out. It's from the folks at uh, UNC Press. That's the University of North Carolina Press. Uh, there in Chapel Hill. Make sure that you get it. Make sure that uh, you tell Taylor when you got it that you heard about it on the cultural hall. So do you just kind of go, that's our history, and well, the future, we don't know. <laughs> like, is it? I haven't had a chance to read to the end yet, but I, I I just wonder if if the look at it is you know through the past until modern day, and then we just go, and it's a choose your own adventure at the
0: end of <laughs> the, cons- the constraints of historical writing. Unfortunately, leave you to with just that. You yeah. know, I, I'm I'm not a fortune teller. I wish I were. I wish I knew where we were going, and. Uh, And I'm not, I I will also say as a historian, I'm not convinced that things necessarily are in the quote-unquote progressive direction Hmm. all the time either. We certainly could see a more conservative version of the church going forward. Uh, You know, our nation is a good example of, as we already said, in the 1970s, the nation was much more liberal than they are today, in part because of the rise of the religious right. Uh, We don't see a a trajectory towards uh, progression all the time. And so... I don't know. I don't know what the future, what the future holds. And I, and, um, but other than to say, as just to go back to what we said earlier, younger members of the church to a shockingly high degree, do not think that homosexuality is, uh, morally different from heterosexuality. Yeah. And, um, that has to have some implications on the future of the church, whether in declining numbers or in change in accommodation or something. But that's ultimately, you know, uh, uh, two colliding visions of the future of the church that have to really be resolved at a certain point. Um, uh, you know, so so I don't know. I don't know how it's going to resolve. i'll I'll Keep you keep you uh, in the loop when I know.
1: <laughs> Choose your own adventure.
0: <laughs> now I, I hope you'll send me a,
1: a link to that essay that you wrote, the theological essay. So people, if they're interested in reading more of your work, is that we'll have that posted in addition to uh, this episode at theculturalhall.com. So you can check that out, sir. I need to ask you three questions that we ask everyone who steps into the Cultural Hall. The first question is: is Do you have a calling right now, and if so, what is it?
0: I'm a ministering brother right now. It's a long story, but we're out in quarantine. So I'm just, that's all I'm doing right now. Good for
1: you. If you could pick a calling for yourself, either one that exists or make one up, what would you pick?
0: Oh my gosh. Let's see. I've had, I'll I'll say that my favorite calling of all time is definitely gospel doctrine teacher. So, you know, I'd I'd go back to that in a heartbeat.
1: I'd attend that class, Taylor. I want you to know that. (laughs) And then finally, and interpret the, this question, however you would like. Uh, the question is, what is your
0: favorite part of your faith? Oh my gosh, the community, by by far. You know, I mean, my 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 faith and my commitment to to the gospel and to the church are based on the idea of a of the Zion project of building a community of 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 believers and of people who work together to make a better to make a better world, to make a better community, to make a better neighborhood, whatever it is we can do, to make a better household. Uh, so so absolutely, that's what it is for me.
1: I love it. Uh, we hope that this episode has nourished and strengthened your body, that if you're not healthy enough to listen this week, that you'll be healthy enough to listen next week, and that when the time comes, you'll be able to travel home in safety. In the meantime, we'll be saving a seat for you on the back row of the cultural hall. Save me a seat. It's sure to be neat.
2: On the back row, We. read.